This is episode 37 of the Landscape Photography Show, and I don't think I've ever had an actual photographer on the podcast who is only shot in black and white. And that's the kind of photographer that we have on today's show. His name is Cole Thompson. And the second I started talking with Cole, not only was I like lulled by his voice, I mean, the dude has this like audiobook quality voice and the way he talks. I thought it, I was listening to an audiobook. It was awesome. I loved his voice. But I started to get the impression that he knew more about black and white photography than I did. And while that may not be saying much because I don't know a whole lot about black and white photography, I have photographed with it. I have played with it a lot in post-processing and I understand what it is, but I didn't really understand the essence of what it is and what it can mean to somebody else. Because I really think a lot of us take a photograph that doesn't work in color and we just put it into black and white to see if it'll work and that's kind of our last ditch effort. It was really interesting to hear Cole's thoughts on what he sees in a black and white photograph, what he can do, what he can manipulate. And I really got a lot out of this conversation and it led me to desire to see those things in the field. It also led me to tackle projects when I see them, when I feel them. You guys are gonna understand what that means after this episode. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, what's up, everybody? We're here with Cole Thompson. And, you know, Cole and I were just talking before we started the recording process about I don't think I've ever had somebody on the podcast who basically shoots just in black and white. So I'm excited about this episode and this conversation and just hear Cole's thoughts about photography, about creativity and imagination. So Cole, first of all, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, but I also want to hear about how you picked up the camera for the first time and how you got started in photography. Well, thank you for having me, David, from Tennessee. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, very nice to be here. Well, where do I begin? At the beginning? Yeah, let's let's go all the way back. Okay. I was 14 years old, and my dad had just gotten transferred to New York. Uh, we were living in Rochester, and I was out taking a hike with a friend one day, and we stumbled across this old ruin. And my friend said that was a home that was once owned by George Eastman. And that kind of piqued my interest. I mean, everybody in Rochester knew, of course, Kodak. And I went to the library, checked out his biography, and uh, just started reading it. And I was just fascinated, overcome with photography. Now, this is before I'd ever taken a picture, before I'd ever been in a dark room. Just reading about photography made me fall in love with it. And I had this idea that I was destined to be a photographer. That sounds pretty silly. A 14-year-old boy who reads half a book and has decided he's going to be a photographer. But that's how I felt then. That's how I still feel. 
and uh, I'm self-taught and have never taken a class, never taken a workshop. I've never worked as a photographer. I've never uh, been, I don't have gallery representation. I'm not a Canon explorer of light. I don't own any prime lenses. So I call myself the most unqualified person to talk on photography. <laughs> perfect. Well, I guess you're the perfect guest then to have on. <laughs> How did studying and reading those early books of photography kind of help you form a style? Well, I, I would have to tell you, I don't really believe in style. Uh -huh. um, I believe style is something that you force and you then say, well, I'm going to stick with this style. And I don't believe in that. Now, I know a lot of this is semantic, so anyone could argue with the use of the word or the way I interpret the word. I believe in vision. And that drives style. Because if you look at my work, it, certainly I have high key work, I have low key work, I have landscapes, I have people, I have uh, the Auschwitz series. I, I have a variety of styles, a variety of looks, a variety of subjects. That's because I believe in vision and vision allows you to photograph anything and to photograph it differently. So there's an opening salvo. So when you do see something in the landscape or a person, what triggers that idea in your mind? Can't tell you. It just triggers. Um, I like to say that part of the reason I enjoy being a photographer is because a picture is worth a thousand words. Therefore, I can express myself through an image and I don't need to explain it. I can't tell you why I see something and it triggers a thought or it piques my interest or why I see it a certain way. But I do know that vision is like a mood and it changes. Um, I give a little story. I did a series called ceiling lamps and it's just a series of images of ceiling lamps shot straight up, not from the side, but just straight up. So it's very graphic. And the very first one I did, I was in Akron, Ohio, visiting my mother, staying at a hotel, waiting to check out, and someone else was being helped. And I was just looking around the room, and I remember seeing this lamp in the lobby, and it just fascinated me, looking at it from below. And I walked over there beneath it, pushed the table out of the way in the lobby, and lay down on the floor and just started taking pictures of it. And that was my very first ceiling lamp. And I went on to do this series of them, which I, I love. Well, a few years later, I'm going back to visit my mother. I'm staying at the same hotel, and I'm kind of anxious to see that same lamp, the one that started it all. And I go into the lobby, I look at that lamp, and my reaction was, huh? I don't get it. Why <laughs> did I see something then that triggered this creative process. And today looking at it, I don't see it. I don't get it. And if I would have seen it on that day, I never would have started the project. Vision changes. Vision is a mood almost. And sometimes you see something that triggers it and sometimes you don't. That's why I'm an advocate of always stopping when you see something that inspires you because you might argue, well, I'll go back later. It may not be there later or the conditions may be different or you may be seeing different later. So always stop. So I have all these follow-up questions when you say that, could it be emotion? Could it be light? Could it be contrast that you see? But I feel like your answer is going to be the same every single time. You just don't know. Don't know. 
And I, you know, and I, I do envy people who can give these big flowery answers. They're the guys who can write these big, you know, hard to understand artist statements, but I'm not good with words. Certainly not good with putting my feelings into words. I know what I feel and I can react to it, but I can't really describe it very well. How many times have you been asked why black and white? <laughs> well, really not as many as you would guess. Uh, because I do a presentation called Why Black and White, in which I kind of jokingly tell this story. Uh, people ask me, you were born into a color world, so why black and white? And I tell them that I wasn't born into a color world. I was born into a black and white one. When I was a child, television was all black and white. News was delivered in black and white. Movies were in black and white. Uh, my childhood heroes were in black and white. And even our nation was still segregated in black and white. So I argue that perhaps it was just the world I grew up in. Now, I don't know if that's really true or not, but it's certainly a factor. There's certainly a nostalgia uh, that black and white evokes in me. But I think there's probably more than that. I hope there's more than that. To me, when you strip away color, you're leaving an image naked. Uh, Color can attract my attention, but it doesn't hold it. Black and white does because it's about form and it's about contrast and composition. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that color can't have that, but too often, in my opinion, in today's world, color is just used garishly and pumped to, like I say, attract attention. And you can't do that with black and white. When you see a black and white image versus a color image, let's say going with some image that another photographer photographed, are you immediately drawn then to look at that black and white image a little bit longer than the color one? Um, a lot of photographers will send me their website or a variety of their images to look at. My eye always goes to the black and white ones. Uh, but I've got to tell you something. What Sometimes when I'm doing a presentation and I do before and after images, I'll show my before image in color, the raw image, and then the after, the final product. And there's times where I can understand why people are drawn to color. I mean, it does attract the eye. But I will still maintain it doesn't hold my attention very long. I'll, I'll throw it back to an interview that I had with Jennifer Renwick, who uh, came on and talked about doing different series of photographs during, you know, a time in her life or a mood she was going through or, you know, just those times where, where things aren't going exactly how you plan them to go. And she said black and white really brought her out of that. Um, have you ever had any experiences like that with one of your series? Explain again what she meant by that. So she meant um, just going through and photographing black and white based on her mood, what she was going through at that time, a difficult time in her life. Mm -hmm. uh, the black and white allowed her to convey that emotion through her images rather mm -hmm. than just going out and photographing it in color. Hmm. I, 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 I would not ever dare to speak to another person what they experienced or what they were thinking or feeling, but I, I can't say I can relate to that because I've never had a desire to photograph in color. I mean, the only time I photograph in color is with my iPhone doing family things. Uh, that just seems natural, you know, but uh, boy, when it comes to 
my work, I can't even imagine producing a color image. Um, and I know I'm extreme. I just, I, I find color to be garish. Now, the, the color images that have attracted my eye have been the very muted ones where it's not used lavishly. So I guess that there is some color work that I would be attracted to, um, but it would be very subtle. Have you always been kind of simplistic in that way? I, in recent years with age, I am forcing myself to be simplistic. I have found it to be good for the creative process. Um, and you know, my one son who he and I are a bit of opposites, he'll always say, things aren't that simple, dad. Well, I choose to make them simple. Um, a few years ago, I, I, I was a technical photographer for many years until about 2004. My whole life was about being technical. I didn't feel I had any creative abilities. So I thought that I could compensate by excelling in the technical. That sounds so foolish now to even say, but that's what I believed. And so I really, you know, had the best computer, the best equipment, the most elaborate setups, the most elaborate processes. Well, as I'm learning to be more creative, thanks to a mentor I had, I realized I was spending too much time with updating OSs, updating firmwares, programs that then wouldn't work because you updated the OS. And it was just like I was in this technical maze. And I decided that I was going to simplify my life. So I went through and I got rid of all the extra gear. I, all the gear I have is in a single bag now. I got rid of all the processes that were unnecessary. And I now have my post-processing is Photoshop, a Wacom tablet, and six steps in Photoshop. Very, very basic, simple process. I got rid of anything that didn't, wasn't required. And then I also started noticing that my images started getting simpler and my thinking started getting simpler. And it's, you know, a lot of people can say, well, you're living in a fantasy world. That's not the way the world is. Well, that's the way my world is. That's the world I'm creating and the world I choose to live in. Simple truths, simple things. Hey guys, I just want to pause real quick and talk about the sponsor for today's episode, and that's visualwilderness.com. If you head over to visualwilderness.com, you'll immediately see the amount of resources that they have on how you can improve as an outdoor photographer, wildlife, landscapes, you know, detail macro shots in the outdoors and nature. I was blown away. I'm a contributor to that site, and right now you can get all of my courses on how you can improve your post-processing workflow and learn different techniques for creative ways to blend your photographs and post-processing to bring your creative vision to life. Right now, those courses are 33% off for a limited time, so you can head to today's show notes at davidjohnstonart.com podcast to find those. You you can also find those over at visualwilderness.com. You know, talking about simplicity and you mentioned post-processing and, and kind of, you know, your six-step process. Um, I went through before we started and, and jumped on this call, I watched one of your videos on your website of your post-processing workflow and kind of those steps that you go through to produce your black and white images. And I did find it extremely 
comforting to to hear you say that you are sometimes intimidated by Photoshop. Has that always been the case for you to be so upfront about your process and vulnerable about that? Uh, for the longest time, I never would let anybody see me process an image. None of my photographer friends, no one, because I felt like the village idiot. I mean, I would listen to these elaborate processes that they had and plugins and masks and curves and layers, none of which I do. And so I was embarrassed. But then with my new thinking, I came to decide that the only thing that matters is the image, not this, all the processes, not the equipment. And so I let people see what I do. And I hope, and I tell people, look, I'm not saying that you should process your images like I do, but I want you to know that you can create a great image with a very simple process. You don't need all these plugins and ink sets and monitor calibrations and curves. I don't even use layers. I don't know how to use layers and I don't want to learn. It's possible and I do it. It's Photo honestly... Uh, I'm sorry, a popular photography called me the Photoshop heretic because I <laughs> do it all wrong. And that's, you know, of course that's tongue in cheek. There is no wrong in Photoshop. There's only what works. It's honestly comforting, you know, to hear you say that. I, I've learned a lot about post-processing over the years and how you can make an image better with quotes in the air as I, you know, highlight the word better yeah. um, based on how you see the image and what your creative vision is. You know, I look back and, and through all this quarantine stuff that we've been going through, not being able to go out and take photographs, I've been going back and looking at some of the older images I took when I first started. And it was startling to me how much I enjoyed them knowing how much or how little I actually did in post-processing. Mm. The majority of it was in-field work going through the processes of seeing light, seeing contrast, seeing what interests me. And I just feel like for a lot of people that gets lost in their process of a goal to produce a better image to what they want to do and, and how other people tell them what a better image is when they really lose out on why they actually started in the first place. Yeah, I agree. The, the two biggest things I think others do wrong in their post-processing is one, believing they need these elaborate processes to produce a good image. And the second, and this is the bigger sin, if you will, is they don't have a vision of what they're going to do when they start their post-processing. It's like they took a picture and now they're just going to flop about experimenting, hoping they stumble upon a great image. I never do that. I believe that when I stand there at the scene, clicking the shutter, I already know what that image is going to look like when it's done. And that vision is my guide through the shot and through the post-processing. I have a roadmap. And sometimes I come across things technically I don't know how to do, but it doesn't matter. I'll figure those out. I know what that image is supposed to look like, what it will look like when it's done. So, again, I, I just don't believe in floundering about and hoping that you'll stumble upon a great image by some new process that you've read in an article that will transform your average mundane image into this, you know, grand image. I don't believe in that. Are you a quote guy? I was reading through your website oh, and I time. noticed you had a full page on quotes. Big time, big time. 
All right, I'm going to read you two quotes that really stuck out to me. And, and what I want you to do is, is kind of explain why you added them versus, you know, other millions of quotes that you could have. Um, the first one was from Mark Twain. It says, you can't depend on your eyes if your imagination is out of focus. What, what does that mean to you? Well, for the longest time, as I was mentioning, I was a photographer and my job, I thought, was to document what my eyes saw. And I actually considered it a photographic sin to use the M word, the manipulate word. Mm -hmm. And I went out of my way to make sure that everyone knew I never manipulated my images because I thought my job was to show you what my eyes saw. Mm -hmm. But now as an artist, I believe my job is to show you what I'm seeing inside my head, my vision or imagination. And if I can't do that, then I am just a photographer. And there's millions of those. All right, let's do the next one. This may sound familiar to you because it was said by someone who's very close to you. What anyone else thinks about your art is none of your business. And that's actually by you, Cole Thompson. It's actually my mother. Uh, really? Yeah, my mom. Well, she didn't say photography. She she used to say to me, you just worry about Cole and don't worry about anyone else. Whatever <laughs> they're doing is none of your business. <laughs> and that, 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 you know, there's so many of those little sayings our parents would say. And then later years, you come to realize how simple and how wise they are. What other people doing is none of my business. So I'm not to be comparing my work to others. I'm not to be looking at their work and saying, oh, man, I was there in Death Valley. Why didn't I see that? Oh, how come I didn't come up with that idea? You know, that, comparing is such a destructive thing and it serves no purpose but to discourage. You know, Cole, that's it's one of the most difficult things for me to do. Um, when I do look at other people's photographs is look at them in comparison with mine instead of appreciating what they saw. And honestly, it's not fair to yourself to do that comparison because they were there in completely different lighting situations. You know, no day is the same. They might've seen something that you didn't because you looked the opposite direction in your car. It's just, it's nothing you did wrong. It's just they saw something that was different than you. Yeah, I find that comparing when you're looking at other people's work on the internet, I tended to compare their best work to my worst work, and that's an unfair comparison. Um, that you know, let's drop a bomb. That's why I pra practice photographic celibacy. Mm -hmm. It is the practice of not looking at other photographers' work. It started off uh, because I was always very imitative. I used to worship Ansel Adams. He was my childhood hero, as millions of children my age were. We just, you know, Ansel Adams was the man to be. And I used to try to imitate not only his look, but I actually would go to Yosemite and try to find where he stood to imitate his exact images. Well, that all came crashing down upon me when one year I went to review Santa Fe. And that's where I spent a day showing my work to experts in the field, uh, curators, gallery owners, publishers. And so you're going from table to table showing your work. We get to the very last table of the day, very long day. I was tired. I'm sure this, this last juror was tired. And he looks at my work just ever so briefly, brusquely pushes it back and says, it looks like you're trying to copy Ansel Adams. And I said, I am. I love Ansel Adams. 
And then he said something that would change my life forever. He said, and he, he didn't say it very kindly. He said, Ansel's already done Ansel. What can you do that shows your unique vision? And that was a slap in the face. I mean, was my goal, my aspiration to be known as Cole Thompson, the world's greatest Ansel Adams imitator. And that put me on this two-year vision, uh, vision quest where I was trying to understand what was vision and did I have one? Was that a difficult two years? Very difficult because I didn't even understand what vision was. I heard people talk about it all the time. And so I, I roughly understood the context, but I didn't really understand what it was. And then here I'm supposed to try to find out if I've got something that I don't even understand what it is. And I didn't find any tutorials or books or anything that helped me know how to go down that path. And then I was afraid maybe to go down the path. What if I found out that vision was something that some people were born with and others weren't? And if, if I didn't have it, what did that mean for my photographic future? So there's a little, you know, I was a little bit scared to, to find out the answer. Maybe it was better to be ignorant about it and just continue doing what I was doing. Was there a moment in that that clicked where you said, oh, okay, I, I get vision now? Because there was no YouTube for you to go to to look up, you know, what is photographic vision? No, and I, I, even today I don't find people describing it very well. Even when I've tried to describe it in probably five different ways, people still scratch their head and don't get it. So, And I understand. I went through that. To me, it was like a wisp of smoke that you just couldn't grasp. But there was a moment, but it wasn't this big aha moment. It was just a quiet moment of understanding. Vision is simply doing what I love and how I see things, ignoring what others think of it, ignoring if I was doing it the right way or the wrong way, ignoring any rules, just ignoring everyone and doing what I loved to do the way I saw it. You know, we talked a little bit about my journey, how, and before we started recording about how, um, I went through a burnout phase in photography. And the reason I picked out that quote that I read to you, that was, you know, from your mom and then kind of morphed into photography context by you was that I did a local art show and I had a lot of my prints out. I felt like, you know, this was, me on a print. And this is how I saw the world. And a lot of people would walk by and it was, it was almost like going on social media face to face with people, because in that context, they had no hesitation about telling me exactly what they thought about that photograph. And I even joked with another photographer that I was going to put a jar out on the the table and that it would read comments $1 and then uh, they would put $1 <laughs> in the jar. But like going through that, it started getting in my head a little bit about it. Do I really need to add these things into my image? And I found myself starting to photograph for other people rather than myself. Oh, it is so easy. We are conditioned from an early age that to please others, to get those pats on the back and the big smile from the art teacher. Uh, it's human nature, apparently, to want to belong, to want to please. But to be true to yourself, to be honest, as an artist, you have to, in my opinion, 
not care what anyone else thinks. Because as I say, I am not creating these images for others. I'm creating them for myself. Now that triggers a lot of negative response from other people. No, art is meant to be shared. It is communicative. Uh, you are creating it for others. And I disagree. I'm creating it for myself. Now, do I like it when after I've created it for myself, others can relate to it? They can look at it and say, I like this. I get it. Now, I know my work is, you know, it it's, draws a minority. There's not a, my type of work doesn't appeal to the masses as Ansel Adams did. And I'm okay with that. I mean, I remember early in my photographic career being in a collective gallery. So your image is hanging with many others and people are walking by looking at stopping at the color image, stopping at the color image, stopping at the color image, looking at yours and just passing it by going to the next color image. I get it. Black and white's the most, not the most popular. And perhaps my style of dark images is not the most popular, but that's okay. Was that difficult for you to accept? Well, back when I thought that fame would bring happiness and I needed it to be happy. Yeah, that was tough then. You wanted to create what people loved. You wanted to be a famous photographer and to be adored. And then, you you know, as you get, perhaps it's just getting older, you realize none of that matters. At the end of the day, it's you and your work. And you have to love your work and you have to be proud of it. You have to be able to say, if I die, I'll be happy to have created these images and have left them behind. You do have on your website, magnificent black and whites of Easter Island, Death Valley, all these places that a lot of photographers want to go to. But honestly, Cole, the one that kind of stuck out to me was your collection of black and whites from Auschwitz. And you mentioned it earlier in the interview. Why tackle that project? Well, I didn't. Let me give a little background. I am often asked, how do I choose projects? And I respond, I don't, they choose me. And when I was there, let me explain how I got there. I was visiting a son in Ukraine. He was serving in the Peace Corps and our family decided we would go next door to Poland. So we take the train right over to Poland and we're in Krakow. And the family's, you know, kind of looking at all the sites to see and we're gonna vote on what we wanna do and I knew Auschwitz was nearby and I really was not wanting to go, hoping the family would not want to go. I don't do sad stories. I don't do sad movies. I don't do sad places, but the family voted and off we were going to Auschwitz. Well, I had my gear with me because I wasn't going to leave it back in the hotel. I think actually we had checked out. So I had my gear with me, but I wasn't going to shoot. I thought it would be irreverent, sacrilegious. And so I was leaving it on the bus and the bus driver saw me and said, no, you can't leave it on the bus. I'm not going to be responsible. So here I am taking the tour with my gear again, with no intention of photographing, no desire. Well, we begin this tour and I just became overwhelmed within the first 15 minutes. And I just signaled to my family that I needed air. I had to get out of that room. And I'm outside alone walking. And I was just looking down at my feet, starting to breathe easier starting to feel a little bit better. And then I just started, my brain starts working. Who else walked in these exact same footsteps on their, perhaps on their way to the gallows? Who else walked this same path on the way to the gas chamber? 
And then I just started wondering metaphorically, I wonder if the spirits of the people who lived and died in Auschwitz still linger. And then this idea just popped into my head. I need to photograph the ghosts of those people who lived and died at Auschwitz. And I had some very basic experience with long exposures and how it had produced some ghosting of people when they lingered just long enough. So I had a basic idea of what I wanted to do. And so here I am, 45 minutes left of the tour of Auschwitz, another hour at Birkenau, an hour and 45 minutes left to create a series. And so I just started running from location to location using long exposures of the other guests who were visiting the camps, turning them into ghosts and created the series. Did you have a tripod? I did. I always have a tripod because I shoot 99.9% .9 of my work on a tripod. So I was lucky and I had enough experience with ND filters and uh, to know what I was doing. But the big thing was I knew what I wanted to do. I had that vision in my head, of what these images were going to look like. And that's the key. Uh, it's not the technical expertise that ever makes an image. It's knowing what you want, having that vision in your head. You know, I love that, that you actually went through with it because I feel like a lot of people would have that thought come into their mind and then kind of just be like, no, nah, I'm on family vacation. No one would really look at that anyways. Or to say, I don't know how to do this. I need to research it. I, I have so many friends and acquaintances who have this attitude. I need to research it. I need to understand how to do it. Then I can come back and do it. Well, I'm not really not going to come back to Auschwitz. I'm not going to have that opportunity again, probably. And I might come back and not feel that same spirit, that same vision. So you got to strike when you're feeling it. That's why I say always stop. Always do the project when you're feeling it. And as far as not having the technical expertise, I can gain that. I have the vision. I have the blueprint in my head. The technical part is the easy part. Do you think photographing a lot of different things throughout your life and your experiences and just what photographing what you see, like you've said, helps you stay creative? Hmm, don't know. I photograph what I love, what inspires me. I think if you want to, you know, here's some common wisdom that I had been given many times by other experts in the field. You're too all over the place. You've got too, too broad of subjects. Pick one thing and become known for that. And that never sat right with me. I want to mm -hmm. photograph things that I have a passion for. And so I think you want to squash passion and creativity Try to box yourself into this little box that's marketable. Forget marketing. Do what you love. To me, that's the best chance you have for success. Well, he's Cole Thompson. Cole, I want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing your thoughts on photography. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a fun conversation.